You're listening to The Jazz Session with Jason Crane. Since 2007, the original jazz interview podcast. Welcome to the Jazz Session. I'm Jason Crane. This is episode 625 for September 6th, 2023. On this episode, saxophonist Christine Jensen. Members of the Jazz Session also get This I Dig of You, the Patreon bonus show on which I ask the guest to talk about something non-musical that is bringing them joy. You can hear the bonus episode by becoming a member for $5 a month at thejazzsession.com slash join. You'll also get early access to every episode of the Jazz Session, plus occasional behind-the-scenes info and other bonus shows. Plus, for every episode, I choose one Patreon supporter to name as the sponsor of that episode. This one was brought to you by Edward Fetter. Thanks, Edward. Christine Jensen is making her third appearance on the Jazz Session. She was on episode number 11 way back in May of 2007, making her one of the earliest guests on the show. She was on again in December of 2010 for episode 227. You can find both of those at thejazzsession.com. Her latest album is called Day Moon. Here's the opening track. Jensen, welcome to the Jazz Session. Thanks for having me, Jason. It's my pleasure. I'm so happy to have you back. We've got a lot to talk about. Uh, we will in no way attempt to cover the time in between the last time we spoke and now. Um, <laughs> but we're going to start with uh, the great new album uh, called Day Moon on Justin Time Records. And, you know, this is uh, certainly a hallmark of uh, a lot of the interviews that I've done over the last year. But uh, this album was also a, a pandemic album, um, kind of born from some of the circumstances uh, that happened during the pandemic. And so I thought maybe we could just start with uh, the origin story of Day Moon. 
day moon is really a neat little what I call a marker in time. Not all my albums are markers in time, but this one was all, for the most part, music I wrote at the beginning of the pandemic or just before. And then um, the band I was working with was kind of my sanctuary band of the pandemic because we all live in Montreal. And at the time, it was hard to be in the room with even one person at the beginning. So it took until the fall of 2020 to really start being able to connect, which is a long time for a musician. So I'd been writing and writing, and then I'm like, let's try. When you were writing, were you writing with these people in mind or a group this size or we or anything in particular in mind at all? I was just doing sketches. And I think sketches are really important. I think about it all the time with teaching composition. And and I'm sure it's like this with writers that write books and things or write articles. You need a topic and you need to refine where it's going before you start to kind of frame it. And that's basically what I do a lot of the time when I do have some free time. And that was like a bonus amount of time in a weird way to do this. Can you walk me through that process just a little bit of, of what a sketch means in this particular sense of what, what might you come up with and then how do you turn it into something more? Yeah. The sketch is the beginning. It's very different from arranging. It's different from orchestration of your own composition. It's just um, to me, it's getting a feeling and working with it. And that sounds really kind of holistic and whatever, but it's more like um, I had a teacher at McGill, actually, Joe Sullivan, who said, are you attached to a sound or a groove? And that's kind of what I have to do is come up and attach myself to a sound or a groove. And in this case, it was a lot about uh, reflection on my feelings at the time. So that's the first step. And then <laughs> you can develop it. So melodic development, harmonic development, all that. Do you tend to write at the piano, on the horn? How, what kind of composer are you? And you just in your brain with software? I go between. I go between the two, if not three, which is between the piano and the horn, and then outside of all of it, and just like yesterday, I wrote a sketch actually that I was kind of happy with, and then this morning I went and played through it, and it's it's also chicken scratch. No one can read it but me uh, until I properly put it into software and sometimes I, I i do recordings like just myself playing the recording and uh, then i listen back with a metronome on it's very simple what i do a lot of people do more like logic and pro tools and all these things and develop these amazing layers but i'm really my layers to me are 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 developing and unfolding my choice of harmony and melody and and what story they're going to tell and what surprises I can get out of them.
do the next steps differ when it's going to be played in a quartet setting as opposed to a large ensemble? Obviously, they, they differ in some some obvious yeah. ways, the number of parts you have to write and that kind of thing. But do you allow yourself more freedom or the musicians more freedom when it's a quartet setting as opposed to when you're writing out parts for a large ensemble, that that kind of thing? I think in a certain way, yes, because I, I have a very strong vision that comes out of the great smaller groups like Coltrane and Shorter in their breakdown settings. I'm a saxophone player, so that's what I do. Listen to them, and I just go, I really want to be in the moment with this music, and I don't want people tied up with too much uh, uh, external activity of concentration that's outside of the improvisation and connecting on stage. So there's a smaller form generally, and, and some of my larger ensemble works have come from these smaller forms that I've I've created. Um, like this is a new, quite new project. I recorded it last summer, and it came out in June. With, you know, it takes a while for post-production and, and the media to get involved, which I'm grateful for. But to be patient with all that... Um, by then, I might have already written a big band chart on one or two of these pieces. You know, you don't know. Um, or I have visions of, of certain pieces. I go, oh, I should I could reorchestrate this or that or maybe get someone to write lyrics on something later on. So my I find my music is a little bit of evolution and comp- composting, not composition, compost, com- compost division. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. Let's try. And, let's try and get that to spread. <laughs> yeah, recycle vision. <laughs> um, but but yeah, to make things more in a grand scale, and that's when there's more pages to be read. I think. So yeah. I'm going to move off this topic in a minute, but I want to just ask kind of one more question in this particular vein, which is so the t- the title track of this record um, is. Uh, day moon and uh, i know that it's a pre-pandemic composition and it is uh at least to some degree inspired by an actual thing as a, a an actual object in the sky the moon during yes. the daytime it is it is a literal title based on a thing you saw so to whatever degree it's possible to uh recreate this magical process from i walked outside and the moon was in the sky during the daytime to i now have a song of that name on an album of that name can you can you say anything that you can say uh, about seeing the thing to now it's a, now it's a tune? How anything about what happens in the middle, what you're trying to capture? I think with that one, it was a mood, um, this kind of topsy turvy mood, because not just the day. I maybe should have titled it another way: Day Moon Meets the Sun or something, because the sun was in front of me and the moon was behind me, right on this street that I'm sitting on right now, and it was really poignant like they were both large they were both kind of at each other it wasn't like a tiny sliver of a moon or anything it was like wow i'd be i'd look behind i look in front and I, I think it was the months before the pandemic and i just was also trying to write some ideas for a cordless quartet so i kept things uh i wanted something that had some drive and some some feistiness between all of us so that ended up on my album with with Code Quartet, which is another group spun off from Day, the Day Moon group, um, same bass player and drummer, and we just we kind of we kind of 
pecked at it, but we were just doing a demo and we had just learned it and we, we kind of put it away. And there is this kind of upside down thing that happens in the piece, which is that it's in a certain mode and drive for most of the piece. And then it's like, hey, look at the turnover of the sun and the moon, like the opposites of them. So there's kind of a, a brilliant sun sound at the end of the form that happens but we stay in the moon form quite for quite a long time if i was to put words to it which i've never had before so there you go <laughs> yeah well that's uh oddly enough that's what we're doing here so uh, i have to do the best i can to get people yes. to put words to these <laughs> esoteric feelings that they have any further will you just mention the members of the quartet because we're gonna i'm sure talk about them more as we go along oh yes um these are some montreal gems i i like to think of them as my sound seekers of of deep sort of deep connection to a lot of music that we all really have much admiration for especially in jazz improvisation so it's Jim Doxus on the drums, who's the brother of Chet Doxus, who's in Brooklyn. And they have a band. So Jimmy knows what it's like to work with family. I like working with him that way. And then Adrian Vidati, who's a wonderful bass player of a certain style. And then Steve Amiro, who is a really old friend of mine that we've spent many years listening to a lot of music together and diving in and out of, of the scene here together. And sharing, kind of sharing outside influences from Montreal. That history with Steve is is really apparent on the duo version of "Here's That Rainy Day" that's on here. I mean, it um, obviously I can only hear it, not not see you guys, but it has a very like we're closing our eyes and just going uh, yeah. going into this tune kind of feel. Can you can you tell me about that recording? That this was another part of our pandemic uh, exercise or exploration which was there was a point where we were allowed to have two people in a room and we were both working at mcgill teaching lessons basically and then doing everything remotely and we made a pact to meet once a week for an hour and just play duo and it was every time we did it you know there was remember all the frustrations of that time especially the first year every time we played duo we would just have like this incredible happiness to us by the end of the session and then we do it was like the closest thing to therapy as as it gets and then we'd part ways and just go on about our thing and then meet every week and it, it was very regular for for quite a while and then we added the quartet to it 
a little more and we weren't the the dual part was just running standards we were we were it was like we were refreshing our list of of music we really like a lot and it comes a lot from the the major repertoire that we all learn in jazz and i had not explored it in a long time because i was so busy learning other people's music or or writing my own music so it really helped me get my voice back on the saxophone at that time are there particular things particular places you go particular ideas you explore in that duo format that don't come up in other settings yes because it's duo duo is basically the most intimate conversation that can happen it's something i like my students to also learn is to play duo whether it's with drums and saxophone or or guitar and trumpet or whatever it's these duo things are so important because you are exposed at the highest degree on your sound and your time and your concept basically so in the case of steve and myself i think we both draw a lot from from piano trios especially and duos like I, I know if I was to, if you asked me, what's your favorite duo record out there? I would go Bill Evans and Tony Bennett. That album floored me when I heard it. I was enamored with every phrase of both players. And it was such a, a neat new concept for me as a teenager. I mean, I was a teenager listening to that. I think it made me like jazz actually. And, and to capture the lyric the way they did, which I can't do. I can't say the lyrics. But to, to phrase them that way was a big part of it for me in this process of revisiting, wow, I'm doing this live with this amazing pianist. I mean, he's, he's really remarkable at, I don't even like the word accompanying. I just call it um, collaborating. He's a collaborative artist uh, that takes me to a deep place. And it has a lot to do with strong time. And that get that gets exposed because it's so easy for bass and drums for us to lean on them, and this way there's no leaning. It's like we are both equal pillars. You can support what I do and help keep the archives freely available for everyone by becoming a member for $5 a month. You'll get a bonus episode with every regular episode, plus early access to every show, additional bonus material, and other behind-the-scenes updates. For example, you usually will find out who's coming up on the show weeks and weeks ahead of the regular folks. You can become a member today at thejazzsession.com join. I write press releases and artist bios and liner notes and Wikipedia pages for musicians and for others, too. I've done that for many of the folks you've heard on this show and for other folks. You can see samples of my work at cranewrites.com. I'd love to write for you, so check out the samples and get in touch. Now back to the episode.
one one of the like jazz cliches is uh you know that it's about the notes you don't play and um i think in a in a larger band setting it's easier to not play um and i I wonder if in a duo there's like some temptation to you know i i can't just leave this person out there on their own you know do i do i need to be playing more or maybe that's not even a thing that factors in but i'm curious how what you think it's like learning how to dance with someone actually Mm. is a great way for me to express it because if i don't know the person and maybe i'm more left-handed and they're more right-handed and we're trying to dance together it takes a lot of practice and that's kind of what we got to do over these months of isolation and it's something that is really positive that came out of it and you know by some some days i as much as we were happy with the sessions we were doing some days i would be like oh my god i can't even play you know and then other times it was magic so we knew we could get to that point and we did a a separate day in the studio with that for to see if we could revisit again it again at the end of all of this so it was kind of neat to record just at the end of the pandemic too like it's over now we can just have a good time there was a little bit of stress but you know it was down at 10 percent as opposed to 95 percent yeah there's a, a suite on this record uh that was commissioned by the jazz coalition and i'm curious about um what the the pitch was or what the commission was if if there was some assignment write a suite about this or that includes this or uh what you were working with i don't i don't totally remember what they the, i think the premise when they they did it, it was right out right out of the like within weeks of of the pandemic starting the a bunch of amazing jazz producers and creators that wanted to help the musicians that stopped had to stop to to commission them and in fact my agent put my name forth i think someone had to put your name forth and uh bryce uh rosenblum was running it i think uh he didn't i don't think they said much they were just like and it wasn't you know it wasn't like a big guggenheim or something it was just a tiny bit of of support but to me it meant a lot because it was right away and they just said do whatever you want maybe you're just going to write one little piece maybe you're going to write something else i ended up you know just going i'm going to take this and do a few weeks of work and turned into a month i think of just scratching away at all my ideas and that's what came out of that suite
So now that this suite exists uh, and we're looking back at it, is, is there uh, a thematic element that unites the parts or or whether it's a yeah. conceptual theme I, or musical? Again, I think it's a timeline theme. It's like I said at the this this album marks a place in time and those four pieces on there was it four 2020 yes. blues was a blues i wrote i was like i gotta i'm writing a blues i'm i'm so writing a blues about this year there's mind which was uh i, I recall it being that cruel spring of cold and everybody being lined up outside just to get groceries in case, you know, don't forget one item because then you have to go back in line and uh, bundling up for lines and, and just waiting. And be, it be, it was such an impatient thing and, and such a scary time, too, because we weren't vaccinated yet. So mind is is a bit more elegic, kind of remorseful song. And Etude de Mars, which I wrote right off the bat when I was told I have to stay home and not go to work where I was teaching tons at, of lessons and composition at McGill and they just shut us down I was like Etude de Mars that's what this one is and it was written right away and it's actually got a very optimistic viewpoint of, of vacation and then Toyos de Davril was written for um myself for my birthday because I was alone on my birthday with my daughter and uh, it's it's a dreamy Brazil is what I call it I'm dreaming of Brazil it's all it, it's all marking place and time especially oh yeah Etude de Mars and Toyos de Abril are, are two definite they were written within a week of each other there's probably similarities to them um, so all of that little suite, it's not very long. It's, they're, again, these are sketches that I turned into forms that definitely had um, a kind of border around them to stop them and and then keep it, it in one, one place in time suite. So that's, yeah, and I've never written a small group suite of music. So that was kind of Kenny Wheeler of me, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> I wanted to ask you, you dedicated this album to a friend. Can you tell me about them? Oh, yes. My dear childhood friend, my, she, she's also kind of a time and place in my life where I launched from growing up in Nanaimo, BC and wondering what the heck I was going to do because I wasn't driven with this music at the time. Like, I was confused, if anything. And she was this non-musician in my life. And sometimes we don't get to have non-musicians in our lives very often. And she she just really became a kind of a sister, a sister to me in terms of like, yeah, you can do it. You can get out there. You go do it. And she was always uh, connected to me. And she uh, had a, I nearly think the pandemic shortened her life. And she passed away last October. So I, I was doing my liner notes in December, and I was also um, throwing a, a memorial for her. And I really thought about the struggles she had and how I didn't have struggles. Her struggles were so much deeper than mine. Mine were artistic struggles. And 
at the same time she was um she found out she was a well she knew she was adopted but then she found out she was a 60s scoop child which is a heavy thing here so we were dealing with that in the last the latter part of her life kind of it's funny because this album is emotional more so just because it was like that yeah yeah it's it's so much more immediate than albums often get to be um yeah you know like written written recorded and released during and then within a quick quick time frame after you know this this world changing event yeah and the world changing event i think is what I mean, I didn't think of her while I was writing the music. I thought of her more about what I was finishing because she always helped me with all my albums with the conceptual ideas. She was a conceptualist, if there's a word for that. But she um, she left me with a lot of I, my privilege using it the way I can because she didn't have that. But she kind of put it through me or I put it through her, I guess. But she was, yeah, she was wonderful. A good good friend from British Columbia that we spent 25 years hanging out in Montreal. But her demise was was through, gosh, all the things we hear on the news. Home, uh, housing insecurity, um, income insecurity, all these things. And it, they just piled up on her health. Her health was very weak and she was not treated well being uh, because of the way she looked, which we know with America that happens too. Mm-hmm. So it was kind of, um, uh, how do I just, a, a bittersweet goodbye would be the way I say it. Well, thank you for sharing anyway, that. Yeah. The last time that you were on this show, I had just uh, moved away from Rochester, New York. And in the intervening years, you have developed. I forgot. You have developed a connection. (laughs) (laughs) Have I ever? Um, Because you now teach at the Eastman School of Music. Uh, Tell me, tell me about that and what it's like. Oh, my gosh. You know, it's, it's just an opportunity that is once in a lifetime for what I do and for what, uh, Hopefully, for our future in jazz and education, I can aid in some change there. Um, and they kind of gave me, the, well, Bill Dobbins retired 
big name, big name in what I do. And he, um, he left a legacy along with these other Eastman people. And I'm, I'm a bit of a foreigner coming in, which is kind of funny. Ha <laughs> ha. It's not that funny, but uh, <laughs> I bring a different world point of view, I suppose. And I'm learn. I've also never spent long amounts of time in the United States. And again, post pandemic, things got shook up so much for me that I just went, heck, why not? I've never done anything like this. And they were so welcoming, the, the faculty and the students, and it's a beautiful program, and it's it's got a really nurturing substance to it. I think uh, everyone comes out with really great skills and artistic vision because of the way it's a music school. And uh, I just needed a new place to kind of start with. Some of my thoughts are in the future of jazz. Well still you know definitely still the tradition is very important to me can you talk about what you're doing there what kind of classes you're teaching what kind of students you're you're meeting with teaching composition and arranging mostly composition and i'm directing the eastman jazz ensemble which i love doing and they have this incredible library there oh my gosh a yeah, performance library that's for sure it's just so i i feel like i'm I don't know. I'm just in a, a gold mine all the time. I'd get to go down there and sniff around and find out who left what with their original handwriting. And it's incredible. Uh, and then I teach, I, I, I like the fact that I teach a lot of masters and doctoral students that are really at a high level that we can have some discourse about the future of what's going on and, and applying some pretty advanced techniques to their work that's great that sounds very yeah. exciting yeah it's fun it's a it's a really beautiful place to work like i can't say enough about the school and they they really are awake with change right now we have been recently talking about uh sarah gazark um it's going to be starting yeah. there soon and uh yeah yeah there's lots of lots of cool I'm folks so there. excited Anyway, I know that uh, kind of uh, along these lines of uh, you having many irons in the fire, I know that besides the album that we're talking about, Day Moon, um, that there's, I think, a large ensemble project on the way. Um, oh, I'd love, yes. Yeah, I'd love to know what else what else is cooking, inclu including any of that. Anything you want to say about stuff that's coming up? Oh, my gosh. There's so much. Uh, well, it's been really fun to just even play the music from this album. We had a hit at the Montreal Jazz Festival. And then shortly after that, I went back into the studio with Code again. So we have another Chordless Quartet album coming out. And that's, you know, there's a lot of common elements, but it's so different because we're a Chordless Quartet. You'll have to meet these guys and maybe we can all come on one day because they're so great. But uh, this Chordless Quartet is everybody shares. Like we all bring music in. We all take part in steps of process whether it's pre-production or post-production and it it's been working like we a lot of collectives fall apart pretty easily the ego gets involved but i think we all have this really kind of nice balance going on 
So we just did that, and then that'll come out, I guess, maybe in the fall. I'm not sure. It's with Just In Time Records, too. And then I have um, my post-pandemic big band in the can and post-production on that right now. So it's it's been going slow because of the scheduling of all of this other stuff. But I'm hoping by January we're done, that it's out. You're like on a an old school jazz musician release schedule here. <laughs> yeah, three three albums in twelve months. That's uh, that's pretty impressive. I know, <laughs> but no, there's something else. And then Ingrid and I have uh, a a lot of small group stuff we want to do together. So we're working toward that, and we're playing a lot with Gary Versace with organ, who's also at Eastman with at me. Eastman now too. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. there's a nice tie there. Yeah, there's just so much. Uh, I have to say that the wealth of the pandemic for me has been that I really produced a lot of of music, whether it was for me or for commissions for other things. So those commissions ended up either ending up on my album or on other large ensemble projects. And then I worked with Mark Turner in March uh, with HR Big Band, did it, doing all his music and arranging it. So um, it put me at the arranging table for quite a while sounds like it yeah but now i'm playing again and it's so fun my guest is christine jensen uh, the new album which as we've learned is one of many uh is called day moon it's on just in time and uh, christine it's been such a joy to have you back on again and to hear about all of this uh wonderful music and teaching that you're involved in thanks for taking the time to do it oh thank you jason it's always so fun to be on this show. And I listen to you as I drive to Rochester all the time. Thanks to my guest, Christine Jensen. Be sure to check out her previous episodes in the archives at thejazzsession.com. Thanks also to the members who support this show and to the Respect Sextet at respectsextet.com for the theme music and Sarah Walter for the logo. Message me if you'd like more info about Sarah and her design work. Chuck Ingersoll is the voice of the intro. You can hire him at hearchucknow.com. Follow the Jazz Session on Twitter at Jazz Sesh, J-A-Z-Z-S-E-S-H, and on Instagram and TikTok at The Jazz Session. Take a second right now to rate and review The Jazz Session wherever you listen. It greatly improves my ability to reach new listeners. I have a second podcast called A Brief Chat. It's also an interview show, but with no specific topic, just interesting folks talking about interesting things. You'll find it wherever you get your podcasts or at abriefchat.com. If you'd like to keep up to date on my podcast, my poetry, and more, you can subscribe to my newsletter. Go to thejazzsession.com and click on the newsletter link. If you value what you just heard, please become a member for $5 a month at thejazzsession.com slash join. And then come back next time for another conversation about jazz on The Jazz Session. Bye. Bye. Bye.